Thanks for listening to the Valley Point Church Podcast. We hope it's a blessing to you. Well, it is a pleasure to welcome back to Valley Point Church, Dr. Joe Modica from Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. Dr. Modica has spoken several times here at Valley Point Church. Now, he is our friend, and he is an encourager to our ministry and to me personally. And Joe and I get the chance to interact frequently, and I'm grateful for him and how he tracks with what's happening here at Valley Point. He knows what we're teaching. He pays attention to all of that, even from a distance, and often shares very encouraging words about what is happening here. He is our friend and our encourager, and he'll speak from that platform today. Just so you know a little bit about him, Dr. Modica is the university chaplain and associate professor of biblical studies at Eastern University. He received his PhD from Drew University in New York. So for all of our New Yorkers, you should feel quite at home today, and that will be a good thing for you. Here's what I know about Joe. He loves helping people of all ages, and you get the chance, really, to speak directly to college-age kids, and that's a great thing, and God has given you many wonderful years to do that, but I know you really love challenging people of all ages with their spiritual development and faith formation, and we're going to benefit from that today. So will you please help me give a warm Valley Point welcome to Dr. Modica. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I oftentimes say that uh, one day I couldn't spell the word chaplain, and the next day I became one. So it's been wonderful serving at Eastern University for the last 26 years, and working with students have, has brought great joy uh, to me, and I know there are a couple of students, not to embarrass you all, but I know that, and you may know that Clarice, uh, Pastor Eric and Tanya's daughter, has been a student at Eastern University and will be graduating in May. Congratulations. Um, she's done wonderfully well as an athlete, and, but also I do have fond memories of her being on the set-up and tear-down team for chapel, I guess, back in the days. You do miss those days at all? No, I didn't think so. That's okay. And then I have one of my former students, Brighton, here too. Are you also graduating in May? You graduate next year. Good. We have you in for another year. And I've had you for a couple of classes or so. Good. So you can do an evaluation of me this morning. But it is wonderful there. I want to thank our worship team this morning. It's just beautiful what they do for the three services and the song selections there too. Um, I generally, and I guess my strategic or visionary plan is to have as many Kohler children come to Eastern University. I'll be submitting that proposal right after you finish your proposal there. But I generally try to bring something that I think Pastor Eric might enjoy, kind of what we call Eastern swag, so he could wear it around and encourage. So I'm running out of ideas, but I think you would really enjoy uh, this. This came a beanie hat. Um, this is not to suggest that winter will continue. I don't want to be too, uh, but let me, let's thank uh, Pastor Eric. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. 
Have you ever lost something that was valuable to you? I know for myself, when I lose something that's valuable, I oftentimes go into an existential crisis. It almost seems my life is going to come to an end unless I can find what I've lost. A few years ago, I lost my cell phone. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. And I just completely just went bonkers to try to figure out where this cell phone was. Now, of course, the first thing they tell you to do is call the cell phone to see if it rings and you can hear it and so forth. So I did that several times right into voicemail message, right? So I don't know what that means. And then I began to scour through the entire house. That's where you usually begin. So, you know, in the couches, uh, under the couch, down in the family room, in my study, in the bedroom. I even got the children together to team with me to find dad's cell phone. I became so desperate that I actually was thinking, maybe I should pay my children to see whoever finds it, you'll get money. I was really determined to get it, but I couldn't find it in the house. Went to the car, which is another logical place, And I went under the seats and in the cushions and so forth and so on. I even looked in the glove compartment, which who puts a cell phone in a glove compartment? But I had to check. I I even picked up the hood. Now, that's really odd. I mean, who, who would want? But I had to. I just was going bonkers trying to figure out where this cell phone was. To the point where I called my pastor. Not for spiritual counseling or emotional support. I asked him to open up the sanctuary so that I could go, because I thought I might have left it there, right? I was, in, I was in church and so forth, and he was so gracious, got up, drove to the church, opened up the sanctuary, went through the entire church, it seemed, couldn't find it. I was just so devastated. What could I have done with this cell phone? Oh, it's got all that important information in it. What am I going to do? Should I buy another one? Should I wait? I was just, oh, I was perturbed. Well, I go into the office the next day and the following days, and once in a while I would just call the cell phone, thinking some miraculous person would pick up and say, yes, I have your cell phone, where have you been? Or something like that, but that didn't work. It just went back into voicemail message. About two weeks go by, two full weeks, I'm sitting at my desk at Eastern University, and I get a call from my wife. And also on the phone is my daughter Meredith. And they're chuckling. They're saying, you can't believe this. I said, what, 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 what? We just got a package from L.L. Bean. I said, well, that's fine. If you ordered something, I'm assuming they ship it. And then you would eventually get, no, 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 no. We got a package from L.L. Bean. And, and your cell phone was in the box <laughs> with a note from the customer service person saying, we discovered this cell phone when a recent return was shipped back to us. <laughs> Since L.L. Bean does not sell cell phones, we knew it must belong to the person who sent it. Oh, my. And they're laughing. Hysterical. Hysterical. And, of course, I am rejoicing. I'm up in the desk dancing around. I'm thinking, this is the best day of my life. My cell phone has returned from Freeport, Maine, to Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. What a trip. And just imagine, I was thinking afterwards, how many times I called that phone that somebody either on the route to L.L. Bean or even at L.L. Bean was thinking, won't this guy just stop calling? We'll get the phone back to him. And that's why, folks, I continue to shop at L.L. Bean. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I tried this with two, uh, two other distributors. I never got the phone back. 
I love L.L. Bean. But isn't it true that when we do find something we lost, there's a sense of excitement over a silly cell phone. It's silly to be that worried about a cell phone and be that excited when it returns. But isn't it true that there's something about being lost and then being found? There's something profound about that in our own human condition. And I think this, this wonderful sermon series called Made is speaking to the issue of what does it mean to have a relationship with God? We're made in the image and likeness of God, right? We know that from Psalm 146. We also know that from the Genesis account. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, it says that God made humankind in his image, right? Image and likeness. So in some ways, we desire to have a relationship with God, and God desires to have a relationship with us. It's kind of a mutual relationship. Now, there are some people that don't want to have a relationship with God, so it's not a given. It's just that we're made that way. And so this morning, I want to talk about a teaching of Jesus that, to me, helps us understand the importance of what it means to be lost. Maybe you never thought about the importance of being lost, but in some ways, understanding that both for our own lives and then the lives of others, can help us understand the joy of discovery. I want to just highlight that currently we are in the church calendar season of Lent. You might have heard that last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which begins a 40-day period, and Christians throughout the world celebrate this season in which they identify with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem which he will suffer uh, a trial and then the passion and then his death. Um, and so in the Christian tradition, we have this period of self-reflection, of sometimes Christians will give something up to try to identify with Jesus' suffering as he moves himself to Jerusalem, knowing his ultimate fate. Now, as you can look at the calendar, and this is a very simple one. There are many other different images I could have used. You can see that on the left side, you see the word Advent. That's actually the beginning of the Christian year. That's like our our New Year's. In the Christian calendar, it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. That's our New Year. And Advent usually happens in November, followed by, of course, we we know Christmas is part of our liturgical calendar, followed by a, a time of Epiphany, which just means manifestation. It's when the Magi come and visit the baby Jesus and then the childhood of Jesus and his young adult life and then he enters into ministry. And then the Lenten journey. In many ways, he is preparing to to his own fate. He's preparing for his own death on behalf of humanity. And then Easter, the glorious Easter, which we'll celebrate on April 21st, Easter Sunday, the culmination of the Lenten season. And then, as you can see, the little red Pentecost Sunday, which is the beginning of the church. Fifty days after Easter, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. It is the beginnings of the church, and the church goes out into the world with good news of Jesus Christ. But do you notice something which I find very comforting in many ways, is that most of the Christian calendar is ordinary time. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we think our Christian life ought to be one holiday to the next, one mountain, one mountain top to the next. Oftentimes we have to learn how to follow Jesus in ordinary time, in the small and the larger task before us, so that we could be faithful followers. 
But this is an important calendar. And the reason why I bring it up is today's text that we're going to look at, the parable we're going to look at, is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, much like we are identifying in the Lenten season. The word Lent just means the lengthening of days, right? We had daylight savings time, right? The days are going to become longer. Just a quick note for those of us who are baby boomers in, in the room. What I did was to prepare to make sure I got here on time this morning, I actually changed the time on my smartphone and moved it ahead an hour. You don't need to do that since it does it automatically. So I was up uh, with the farmers this morning. I kind of plowed a couple acres of land. I harvested another couple of acres. I'm really ready to go. I mean, I really feel I've done a lot so far. But really, the point being that Lent gives us this time of reflection. So the story we're going to take a look at has to be set in context because there's an old saying in biblical studies, a text without context is just a pretext for making it say anything you want. A text without context is just a pretext. So what I want to try to do this morning in our limited time is kind of place this teaching of Jesus, which is found in the Gospel of Luke, in a context that helps us understand perhaps what it means to be found, and what it means to have been lost and been found there. So um, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, if you have any kind of device, I'm going to be looking at Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke's gospel is the third gospel, right? You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four gospels that narrate the life of Jesus, uh, slightly different, but oftentimes with the same similar focus, but slightly different. Uh, Matthew was an original disciple of Jesus, and so was John, but Mark and Luke were not. Um, Luke might be be the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. He probably was a physician who came to know Jesus and then began to preserve the biography biography of Jesus. So we're going to take a look at, um, actually, a, a scripture text right before the passage this morning is in Luke 9.51. Now, this is important because it talks about Jesus going about face and turning himself to Jerusalem. So Luke records that in Luke chapter 9. Now, before this time, think about it for a second. What do we have in the first part of Luke? We have the birth of Jesus, the childhood of Jesus, Jesus' relationship to John the Baptist, and the ministry in Galilee is happening all before chapter 9, kind of getting Jesus... His identity is getting known, and he's a teacher. From this point forward, he's thinking about his death. He's thinking about what he will have to do when he goes to Jerusalem, hence the Lenten connection. For for when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, this is kind of a, a reference to the ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He kind of turned and set his face to go to Jerusalem. And another translation in the NIV, which I like, I like the word resolutely. As the time approached for him, being Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He had resolve. He had focus. He's moving towards Jerusalem, which for anyone reading the gospel, when you talk about Jerusalem, it's suffering. It's death. It's, it's, it's the trial that Jesus had to face. So what we're going to learn now this morning is that the teaching of Jesus that we're going to take a brief look at comes during his time of movement towards Jerusalem. 
So there's something that Jesus wants his disciples to learn about the kingdom of God, but also it's going to be interesting who else is listening in. You know, Jesus was a very interesting character because it's not just about his disciples, it's other people leaning in when he's teaching, other people listening in. So we'll take a look at the text. It's a familiar text. It's the parable of the lost sheep. Probably you've heard this text before in one form or another, but we'll go to the text now. And I'll read it in its entirety, and then we're going to come back to it, um, particularly the first couple of verses, uh, in a bit. Okay, let's take a look at Luke, Luke chapter 15 and the first seven verses. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go out after that one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay. This is the parable of the lost sheep. Now, chapter 15 in Luke is very important to the gospel. The Luke gospel, Luke has 24 chapters. Chapter 15 has three parables of lostness, one right after the other. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, or sometimes we, we know it as the prodigal son. A lot of lostness, <laughs> a lot of lostness in that chapter. It's a chapter of lostness. And, and scholars think about this chapter as the heart of the third gospel, meaning when you read chapter 15 of Luke, when you, st- when you read these parables, they're telling us of what's God's posture towards the lost. What's God's attitude towards those on the margins, those who are lost, those who need a relationship with God. And it's interesting, too, how things move. The first parable, it's one out of a hundred, right? That's the kind of dynamic. Um, and then the coin is one out of ten. And then the lost brother is one out of two, so there's a severity of lostness. It gets more intense, right? I could oftentimes think it's much easier to find out who's lost if you only have two, like a brother lost, rather than 100, and you're thinking, oh, is there, is there 89 or 99 there, right? If I, if I was to tell you, if I put 100 coins on, the, on, on a table, and I said, turn around, I'm just going to take one or two or three, you'll tell me how many there are, it probably would be difficult for you to know exactly how many there are. So there's a severity in which the lostness becomes more intense as the chapter moves on. Well, let's make a couple of uh, observations. But before I do, I want to give you a definition of what a parable is. All right? So, again, um, there will be a small quiz right after... Uh, no, it won't be. If this is going to sound academic because I'm going to show you the picture of the scholar uh, who, uh, who, who gave us this definition. And it's really the gold standard definition 
about parables, and I find it very helpful. So C.H. Dodd, in the 20th century, one of the leading New Testament scholars, wrote a book called The Parables of Jesus, or The Parables of the Kingdom, and he gives this definition that many of us to this day continue to use as a good framing of how to understand a parable. So I want to read it to you. A parable, at its simplest, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving in mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to do what? To tease it into active thought. I like that definition. Some of you are certainly familiar with similes and metaphors, right? They're figures of speech, uh, that give some, well, a metaphor to an inanimate object, a figure of speech like my computer died would be metaphor. Computers don't actually die like people do, but we use that metaphor to kind of say, oh, I got the blue screen of death or something like that. A simile is l- using the word like or as. So if you say uh, strong as an ox or brave as a lion, those are similes to help us understand what the point of braveness is or strength and so forth. So Jesus in this parable, I mean, uses certain things. What I like about it too is that sometimes parables are vivid or strange. They're meant to be strange. It's not meant to be comfortable like, oh yes, I know exactly what it means. It's supposed to be like, well, that's really odd because there's no one interpretation of a parable, it seems. It was meant for the listeners to make certain connections There's many listeners to this parable. We'll unpack that in a moment. And then it's supposed to tease all of us into active thought. Maybe one of the things we don't do as Christians as often, and this is going to sound a little odd, is we don't use our imagination enough. Right? To imagine a world that is better because of who we are in Christ, to imagine what could be done in the name of Jesus. So we have to use our imagination, and sometimes parables spark that. So this parable is interesting, right? If you go on on, on its surface, there's what? One shepherd, a hundred sheep, one gets out of the fold, a shepherd leaves the 99. Now that's kind of odd, right? In the wilderness, it says, leaves. So hopefully there were associate uh, shepherds, right? There was probably like, okay, you take over. I got to go run and get the lost sheep. And then when... When you get the lost, when he gets the lost sheep, he doesn't scold the sheep or, you know, get a little bit annoyed. Where have you been or anything? What does he do? He basically puts the sheep on his shoulders and brings it back and rejoices. Rejoices. Isn't that interesting? There's a wonderful worship chorus called Reckless Love that we sing often in chapel and speaks to the issue of the reckless love of God in light of understanding um, that he would leave the 99 to find me. I'll just read the chorus to you. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. That is pretty powerful for the shepherd to leave 99 in the wilderness. That's what the text says. It's in the wilderness to find a sheep that just kind of went off astray. You know, sheep are not very intelligent animals. So if you're whistling, hey, sheep, 
If you had a name, he's like, come on back. It doesn't work, right? Reminds me of, the, uh, we had a dog at one time, Penny, that we had to get an invisible fence around our property because every time you open the door, bing, that dog is out running. It was a cockapoo. I don't know if that's a propensity of cockapoo. Just taking off, right? Until we got the invisible fence, what would happen is my daughter and I would get in, I would drive the minivan, and she would be on the side of the minivan with the, oh, trying to open the door as we found the dog racing down the block trying to get him in. And I want to tell you, friends, I was not rejoicing. There was no party like, hey, Penny has returned. Let's get some duck donuts. That's not, no way. I was not a happy camper. Here, the shepherd, this is strange, that the shepherd would actually throw a feast. Hey, neighbors, friends, come on. I found the sheep. Let's be honest. Sometimes we would say, well, we lose one out of 100. We still got 99. Right? Think about that. What's one little sheep? I mean, we'll find another maybe, or maybe we'll buy another. No, it's something important about completeness, about completeness. So this parable is strange. It also is strange how it ends. Luke kind of editorializes a little bit. What does the last verse says? Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, that's not a direct interpretation of the parable insofar as, you know, sheep are not sinners. They don't need repentance, right? When is the last time an animal repented about anything, right? Right? But it's, it's a point being, it's an illustration. It's supposed to be a little strange that a shepherd would do such a thing just for one sheep, one lost sheep. And friends, <clears throat> when we think about our own identity in Christ, when we think about those of whom we love, those who are coming to Christ, and I use that in kind of they're coming to Christ, we just keep praying for them. <clears throat> it's so important to know what's God's posture for the lost? What's God's attitude towards the lost? And so I want to do two things when I, before I close. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who's written a book that has been really helpful to me in understanding the lost sheep, and that is A.J. Levine. I think we have it up there. Now, uh, it's, the book is called Short Stories by Jesus. Now, A.J. Levine, Dr. Levine, is a very interesting character. Let me say this. She's a personal friend. She's a Jew who teaches New Testament studies at a mostly Protestant seminary. You figure that out. Right? She teaches at Vanderbilt University. So she's a Jew teaching future ministers, mostly in a Protestant denomination, denomination about what it means to preach the gospel. And I think it's fascinating. We've had many conversations. We even had her at Eastern University give a lecture. Wonderful. But she writes in her book something really interesting. She says, um, Christians, just remember something. Jesus was not a Presbyterian, nor Methodist, nor non-denominational, right? Jesus was and continues to be a Jew. And his followers are mostly, particularly in the early stages, Jewish. So in some ways, the New Testament is a Jewish document in many ways. So we need to be sensitive to some of the context, some of the background, um, perhaps things that we might miss when we domesticate the parables or we, we only see it with one lens. So I want to give a quotation from AJ and then make three observations that will be done for this morning. But this comes from her book and she's, she's quoting about this parable. Matter of fact, she retitles the parable. Like in our Bibles, you'll see the lost sheep. 
She retitles it as the shepherd who lost the sheep, right? She says, she says, the blame is on the shepherd. You don't blame the sheep, the lost sheep. Oh, that poor sheep just didn't know, made a right when it should have made a left. No, it's actually the shepherd's responsibility. So here's the quote. A.J. Levine on the parable of the lost sheep. The parable presents a main figure, the owner, not the sheep, who realizes he's lost something of value to him. He notices the single missing sheep among the 99 in the wilderness. For him, the missing sheep, whether it be one of a hundred or a million, makes the flock incomplete. Makes the flock incomplete. He engages in an exaggerated search And when he's found the sheep, he engages in an equally exaggerated sense of rejoicing. First by himself and then with friends and neighbors. And here she ends. If this fellow can experience such joy in finding one of a hundred sheep, what joy do we experience when we find what what we have lost? What joy do we experience when we find what we have lost? So... What does that mean? If we go back to the text, here's where I want to just take a couple minutes and I'll be done. Oftentimes, we jump right to the parable, which begins actually in verse 4 to 7, right? We go right into the parable, and most of us might ask the question, well, what does the parable mean? And that's a great question. And again, understanding C.H. Dodd's definition, there may be many different angles to the parable. But you know what we sometimes skip over in our hurriedness? Verse 1 and 2. The framing of the parable. Who's listening? Who's the audience? Who's leaning in when Jesus begins to teach? Let me go back again. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. I mean, really, all the tax collectors that ever lived, in a sense? Right? A little bit of hyperbole. All the tax collectors and sinners but they were coming near to listen to Jesus. They were leaning in. Tax collectors were like IRS folk. I know, get your taxes done. My wife and I, we just submitted our taxes recently. You know, it was about that time, right? But the problem with tax collectors in the first century, sometimes they aligned themselves too closely with the Roman Empire, so it was a little bit, they were looked upon. But they were good, hardworking, middle-class folk. And then sinners is just a category of people that were on the margins, you know, people that didn't have uh, maybe an identity group, maybe that was felt a little ostracized or marginalized in many ways. So those are kind of, that's one group of people that are leaning in, and they're really positively leaning in. They're coming to listen. And then, of course, unfortunately, we have some of the religious folk. And not to paint the Pharisees and the scribes in a terribly negative light, but it seems like they're grumbling, right? They're concerned about what Jesus has been doing up to this point. And what do they say? This fellow, or this guy, this guy, like in a disparaging way, what does he do? Welcomes sinners and eats with them. Wow. If you read in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is called a drunkard and a glutton. The son of man, you know, John the Baptist didn't come eating and drinking, but look at the son of man, he comes and eats and drinks. And, so, and also Matthew's gospel. Now, that's an exaggeration, right? Uh, Jesus is, you know, doesn't need to have a Mediterranean diet. He would have had one anyway, right? He, he lives in there. So he's not overweight necessarily, and he's not someone who needs a 12-step program. It's an exaggeration. It's an accusation. Why? Because Jesus is doing something regularly. He eats and welcomes sinners. He eats with folk that are not like him. He eats with the lost. 
When is the last time we ate with the lost or we welcomed the lost, right? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I like to eat with people I like, right? Except on Thanksgiving. That always happens. You know, it always goes a little bit. It could go a little bit wrong. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn and Queens, and sometimes meals became battles, right? They were not necessarily, hey, everybody, have pass the bread. It's like, get your hands around my throat. What are you doing, right? <clears throat> but think about Jesus. This is a model for lostness if you want to understand how to respond. What does it mean to welcome and to eat? What does it mean to welcome and to eat? You know, it's not just welcoming, right? That could be something we could do, but it takes a greater risk to actually eat with people because it's a social contract. When you eat with someone, you are saying, I connect with you on a kind of biological, sociological way. I'm going to eat with you. Very powerful. That's why one of the most powerful things in the New Testament is when Jesus says, Take and eat my body. Take and drink my blood. It's a meal, friends. It's a meal. It's a Eucharistic meal. So this parable about the lost sheep is given to people who are lost, of course, but Jesus models the parable. He actually interprets the parable by welcoming sinners and eating with them. He's kind of already the embodiment of all these lost parables by his attitude and posture to people. Three quick things. The joys of lostness. I'm putting a spin on this. I'm, I think lostness is a positive thing if you understand that, number one, it's a paradox because no matter how much you feel lost, and you could feel lost right now in your relationship with God, you feel distant, maybe there's problems, there's anxiety, there's bills to pay, children to raise, but the paradox is Jesus, God does not withdraw from us. God is always with us. If we believe Jesus' words at the very end, at the Great Commission, he says, and remember, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I take that as truth. (laughs) I take that, that even when I'm not feeling very found in God, so to speak, it is critically important to know that God never leaves us. We may feel that God has left us, but God has never left us. Number two, I think lostness is a gift. So I was looking at it, it kind of a, a positive way of looking at it as a gift is that we can only understand what it means to be found when we have a profound understanding of lostness. It's almost like, how do you really understand love? You have to know about hate, right? You have to have the contrast. It's almost like the joy of lostness is I know I can be found and God is here for me. And so that's a beautiful gift, And then thirdly, and finally, it's about a community celebration. So what do I think? I think the church, and I I know Valley Point does this, but I believe the role of the church, when we gather on Sundays, no matter where you go to church, they should be telling us over and over again how to be found in Christ, how to be found, how to be found. Over and over again, you're being found again and again and again. Ah, because we need, to be, we need a repetition. And we also be, need, be reminded that this world can be a very difficult place to navigate. Issues of identity, issues of politics, uh, issues of um, just way, ways of being salt and light in the world can be so difficult. We need the reminder of being found in Christ over and over and over again. I'd like to end with a prayer And this is a prayer that 
um, is by Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was a contemplative Trappist monk who died in 1968. In many ways, um, he's been like a spiritual um, mentor to many people over the years through his writings. Um, And this is a prayer that's now been deemed the Merton Prayer, although it's not really titled that way. It's in his journal, Thoughts in Solitude, Thoughts in Solitude. I'm going to read this as a way of being comforted, knowing no matter how we feel, no matter how desperate we may become, no matter how the circumstances may overwhelm us, that God will always find us, that God will always find us. So let me pray this prayer as we conclude. Let's pray together. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear For you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you call Valley Point Church home or would like to make a donation, please go to valleypointchurch.com slash online giving. If you're in need of prayer, we would love to serve you in that way. Send us a message at prayer at valleypointchurch.com. Be blessed.